Okay, I've got to keep talking, it's something I'm very good at. Okay, so, uh, so let's uh, welcome everybody. Uh, what we're going to do uh, to start with um, is we're going to recite together uh, as we stand uh, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, this is an ancient declaration of what we believe uh, as Christians. Uh, so let's stand together and say these words, and then after we've said these words together, uh, then we'll have our first hymn. So let's stand. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy worldwide church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.
song we uh, heard how uh, nations rage and devils roar uh, but still Christ he reigns forevermore doesn't he and that's uh, a theme uh, throughout the Bible uh, and even though uh, Jesus Christ appears in person in the New Testament uh, that truth is all the way through and one place we see about the nations plotting against God and his anointed is in Psalm 2 and that's where our reading this evening is going to come from uh, Psalm Two, and Ian's going to come now uh, and read that psalm for us. Psalm 2, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise and the rulers take, band together against the Lord, against his anointed one, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dust them in pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For the wrath, his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are 
the one true God. As we read this morning, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We thank you that you have no rivals, that no one is threatening you, that uh, your throne may be diminished in any way. We read here that you scoff at the pathetic attempts by humanity to rise up and conspire against you. We see this in our world today with people scoffing at your word, trying to overturn what is uh, right and good that you have taught. We thank you that in your goodness you have revealed to us your word. And we thank you that it is your word that endures forever and that the vain plots of the peoples of this world to overturn it will be brought to nothing. May this knowledge give us great trust in you as our king and trust in your word that even when people around us tell us not to follow your plans, we will know that it is for our good to live lives for your glory. We're called in this psalm to fear you, to celebrate your rule with trembling, submitting to your son. Help us to do that and forgive the times that we have failed. And we thank you, Lord, we can pray for forgiveness because even in this psalm where we see people conspiring against you, we read of the blessing for those who take refuge in you. And we thank you that you are both our king and our father. And you have forgiven us for our sins as we trust in your son, Jesus Christ. We want to take the time tonight also, Lord, to pray uh, for those who participated in the Pastor Training International Conference in Uganda uh, just last week. Uh, We pray, uh, as Gerald asked us to, that the participants would truly benefit from what they have learned and that in their ministries, as they make Christ known as they elevate Christ as king where they are, that they would be strengthened as they do so, and that they would know that in their area of the world, the plots against you and your anointed will come to nothing, that you reign forever. And we, pray, we pray that you would build up pastors there in Uganda that would make Jesus known in that land. And we pray Uh, For other areas too, Uh, Gerald mentioned India and Myanmar. Again, all over the world we pray, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we thank you we can pray these things because you have shown us indeed that you are king and you've shown us this by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. Thank you for the certainty we can have in you through him. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our next song continues uh, that theme of knowing that Jesus reigns forever. Uh, That is the name of the song, He Shall Reign Forever.
It's amazing when we uh, read um, and think about the, the rule and reign of Jesus Christ and how he's king over all. Uh, it makes it all the more amazing when we see him uh, going to the cross, doesn't it? Standing before uh, the Sanhedrin, before Pilate, before his enemies, and silently uh, goes to the cross. Uh, but he's still at that moment king of kings and lord of lords. It's amazing to think about that, isn't it? Well, if I was to ask you uh, the question, who is the most famous Roman of all? Uh, there's a number of names that you might think of. You might give names of emperors, uh, people like Caesar, uh, Augustus, and Nero. Uh, some people might think of uh, politicians like Cicero or the philosopher uh, Seneca. Uh, you may not have heard of any of those, but they are uh, famous Romans. Uh, but whilst they may be known figures today, and probably uh, the more famous of the Romans, uh, in history, there is one Roman figure that all church-going people for thousands of years would have heard of. He is the most famous Roman of all. In fact, this Roman is one that in our church, numerous times every single year, we name him. And many Christians all over the world name this Roman most days. Who is this? Of course, it's the one that we recite in the Apostles' Creed. We believe that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. And we see tonight in Matthew's Gospel how Jesus did suffer under Pontius Pilate, uh, the most famous Roman of them all. So if you have a Bible, turn uh, with me to Matthew chapter 27. And tonight's passage is from verse 11 uh, down to verse 26. And in this passage, we see Pontius Pilate speaking a number of times, uh, but really he's asking lots of questions. So notice, really, whenever Pilate speaks here, he's asking a question of some kind, isn't he? So uh, we're going to read from verses 11 down to verse uh, 26. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. 
What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they all, they shouted all the louder, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is God's word. Uh, At the end of this section of Matthew's gospel, uh, Jesus is handed over to be crucified, and so the events that lead up to the crucifixion have come to an end, and from next week, we'll be looking at Jesus going not to the cross, but on the cross. And so it's a good point at, uh, right here, as Jesus is handed over, and we've seen the events at the various trials, and we've seen uh, Peter and Judas and so on, to ask this question, which is, I think, what Matthew is wanting us to ask. Who murdered Jesus Christ? The last time we saw Jesus, he had been tried before the Sanhedrin, and he had been declared guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. He was insulted and beaten. And at that point, the camera then turned, if you remember, last week to Peter and Judas. But now the camera turns back to where Jesus is, and we arrive at a new scene. He's now in the presence of Pontius Pilate, having been brought to him earlier in the morning after the trial at Caiaphas's palace. And whilst the camera is on the place where Jesus is, the zoom of the camera, if you like, focuses in on Pontius Pilate. He is the last kind of link in the chain, if you like, in order to have Jesus executed. If you remember last week, it had to be him who signed the death warrant for Jesus. Only the Roman governor could order the execution of somebody. The Jewish people couldn't. The Romans kept that responsibility in their remit. And the governor was a man called Pontius Pilate. Now, in various Roman provinces, they would appoint a governor to oversee the Roman rule. And Pilate was governor in charge of Judea for for 10 years, for a decade, from AD 26 to AD 36. And the aim of the governor was to keep the peace whilst maintaining the rule of the Romans. And extra-biblical sources present Pilate as a man who constantly clashed with the Jewish people he ruled over because of his insensitive style of governance. And it was due to his inability, in fact, to keep this balance between keeping the peace and and ruling over the area that he was eventually sacked. That's why he was only there uh, for a decade. And it was this man, Pontius Pilate, who had the authority to put Jesus to death. It was his responsibility as Roman governor. And so when we think about who murdered Jesus Christ, we can make a case for the chief priests, the, the Sanhedrin, and we can make a case for Judas, 
Uh, But Pilate's name here is thrown into the mix as well. But what makes Pilate different from all the others is he wants to pass that responsibility on to other people. He doesn't want to take it himself. And we see this play out, this final stage of Jesus' trial, uh, in in, in a structure of seven questions that Pilate asks. And these questions get more and more desperate as Pilate tries to avoid being the one who is labeled as the one who murdered Jesus Christ. And they are questions we need to ask ourselves. Because what Matthew also shows us is that we also have a responsibility for these events that happened 2,000 years ago. You may be thinking, how is it, how, how, what's it got to do with me? Well, Matthew will show us what, is it, what it has got to do with us. And these seven questions can really be put into five groups. And that's the structure of this sermon. Uh, five uh, groups of questions uh, that Pilate asks. The reason that there are five groups is because a couple of them are really the same question. So first of all, we see a question of crowns. A question of crowns, that's in verse 11. So here Jesus has been taken across town to Pilate's residence early in the morning. Uh, Remember earlier on in chapter 27, in verses 1 and 2, the religious leaders were making plans to have Jesus executed. They had to figure out what to say to Pilate in order for Jesus to have the death penalty given to him by that governor. And they had obviously come to a decision and brought charges to Pilate because Pilate asks Jesus a question. Are you the king of the Jews? Now for Pilate to ask this question means that the religious leaders had brought a charge of sedition. Sedition is rebelling against the ruler. So they had said to Pilate something along the lines of, Jesus is claiming to be the king. He's claiming to have the crown himself over these people. Now, before, when the, uh, the, the, uh, before the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas asked Jesus a similar question. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Caiaphas asked this so that he could charge Jesus with blasphemy. But here, the charge isn't a religious one, but an earthly one. An earthly authority claiming to be king. And notice how Jesus responds to Pilate. It's exactly the same response as he gave to Caiaphas. In verse 11 he says, you have said so. So Jesus doesn't deny the title, but he does not affirm Pilate's notion of kingship. So when Caiaphas asked him, if you are the Messiah... Jesus said the same thing, but then gave a definition of what the Messiah really means. But he doesn't do that with Pilate, because Pilate's not going to understand any Old Testament language, so he simply says, you've said so. Now, if Jesus had just denied this, if he had said, no, I'm not the king, I don't know what you're talking about, well then, he would have ended the trial. But Jesus doesn't deny it, does he? He says, you have said so. And this question is one we ought to ask ourselves as well. We might not phrase it as king of the Jews, but we have to ask if Jesus has authority over our lives. 
And Matthew's claim through his gospel is that Jesus does have authority. Jesus is king. He's not just king of the Jews, he is king over all. And we've seen Matthew present Jesus as this throughout his gospel, uh, beginning with his genealogy, but through his miracles, and ultimately his teaching, and in the end we're going to see it as he raises Jesus from the dead. Indeed, Jesus is king. Well, the words you have said so are the last words of Jesus before Pilate. He doesn't say anything else. He remains silent, which leads us on to Pilate's second question, which is actually a question of confusion. In verse 12, we see that the chief priests and the elders accuse Jesus. We don't read what the accusations were here, but they would have related to this charge of sedition. Other Gospels tells us that they accused Jesus of claiming to be a king. Uh, They accused him of not paying taxes to Caesar and so on. And the end of verse 12, notice what it says there, that Jesus gave no answer. He remained silent, which leads us to Pilate's question in verse 13, which shows that he's confused. Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? Now, without any evidence, Pilate shouldn't really convict Jesus. So all it would take was some kind of denial from Jesus, and he would be able to go free. But what, makes, what, what Jesus does is make no reply to one single charge, which we read in verse 14, was to the great astonishment of Pilate. The word astonishment there means uh, that he wonders at it. He doesn't understand it. He's confused. Why doesn't Jesus just defend himself, Pilate would be thinking. Pilate, no doubt, has never seen this kind of behavior before. Just like before the Sanhedrin, when Jesus remained silent, it's not normal. If we're accused of something, especially something that we didn't do, then we jump to our defense, don't we? Why does Jesus remain silent? Well, as confusing as this was for Pilate, it should not be confusing for us as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, especially following uh, the, the Garden of Gethsemane and the trials. We've seen this before. Jesus is determined to go to the cross to save his people from their sins. That's why he remains silent. He fulfills the scriptures like Isaiah 53, which speaks of him being silent before his accusers. And isn't there today much confusion about Jesus? People don't understand why he came. People don't understand what he has done. People don't understand what Jesus was like, and they interpret what he has taught in all sorts of weird and strange ways. Here, Jesus confuses Pilate with his silence. Why he seemingly goes to the cross on purpose. But there shouldn't be confusion. There should be clarity. Certainly for us as we read the Gospels. And clarity about why Jesus died on the cross is actually brought out in Pilate's next question. Pilate's confusion is not resolved, but unbeknownst to him, he shows us himself the reason for Jesus' silence and the purpose for Jesus' death on the cross. 
Because in his next question, we see a question of choice. In verse 15, we read that there was a custom, uh, a custom which seemed to be uh, between Pilate and the Jewish people at Passover, rather than a Roman-wide custom. And the custom was that a prisoner would be released to the people as an act of mercy. It wouldn't just have been any prisoner. The Jewish people couldn't just say, we'll have him. But rather, what was likely happening was Pilate would choose a prisoner or a selection of prisoners for the Jewish people to choose from uh, at the Passover. And verse 16 says that they had a well-known prisoner. It's it's not clear whether uh, Pilate had this prisoner or the Jewish people had this prisoner that they wanted released. But the prisoner was well-known. The the Greek word for well-known is a bit ambiguous. It it could mean notorious, uh, but it could also just mean noteworthy. And likely, this prisoner was notorious to the Romans and popular to the Jewish people. Uh, His name was, interestingly, Jesus. There's an obvious um, comparison here. Uh, His name was Jesus Barabbas, And Barabbas means son of a father. And from the other Gospels, he's described as an insurrectionist and murderer that was involved in an uprising. And this rebel against Rome was probably popular with the Jewish people who were suffering under Roman rule. If he had led an uprising against the Romans, then that was probably why he was popular amongst many. And by verse 17, a crowd had gathered And Pilate saw a way out of this situation. He would give the crowd a choice between the two Jesuses. Now, Jesus Christ had been popular with the crowds before. Uh, Pilate would have heard about this. Remember on uh, Palm Sunday, that's one big example, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the donkey with the adulation. And so Pilate has an idea which is shown in the third question in this passage. Notice verse 17, he says, or he asks, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? And so here is the choice. Jesus, the son of a father, or Jesus, the son of the father? And verse 18 tells us Pilate's thinking. He knows that the only reason Jesus Christ was there was because of the religious leader's self-interest. The word behind self-interest is literally envy. They were envious of Jesus' popularity, of his knowledge, of his ministry, of how they're never able to best him in a debate, and so on. And knowing Jesus' popularity with the people, knowing that Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, he was only there because of these religious leaders' envy, He thought he would surely see Jesus walk away if he gave them a choice between Barabbas and the Christ. Surely the people aren't going to want to release a murderer instead of this innocent man. Pilate wanted to get out of this because he knows this is not right. But Jesus' innocence is highlighted to Pilate even further. And the choice of his question made even starker In verse 19, when a message comes from his wife. So she has had a dream which has caused her great suffering. And notice what she says about Jesus in verse 19. 
don't have anything to do with this innocent man. The word for innocent here means righteous. So it's more than he just isn't guilty of this particular crime. The word here means he's positively righteous. This is a righteous man who's on trial here. And it's interesting that in the midst of all this corruption, God speaks through a pagan woman in a dream to show the so-called people of God that they were trying to put a righteous man to death. And that makes the choice even starker, doesn't it? A murderer or a righteous man? And the chief priests make their choice. In verse 20, they try to persuade the crowd to join them. And in verse 21, we see Pilate's fifth question, which is the same really as the fourth. He says, which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. The choice had been made. And we are all also called to make a choice about Jesus. The question, which Jesus do you want, is one which is still being answered today. The Jewish people thought that Jesus Barabbas could be their savior. An insurrectionist, they thought, could surely set us free from the Roman captivity. But we never hear of Barabbas after this event. He was not their savior. And how often people choose the wrong savior. Sometimes we're persuaded to, uh, like the crowd were, aren't we? There's a strong pull to choose something other or someone other than Jesus Christ to make our lives complete. What are you choosing to save you? Are you choosing money or relationship with a person, fame, other religions, comfort, good health? You can put your trust in any number of things. But unless your trust for salvation is in Jesus, the Messiah, you have made the wrong choice because only he can save you from your sins. And the reason he can is because of another choice being made here, which we ought not to miss. Another person who is responsible for the murder of Jesus Christ and that is Jesus himself. Because in Jesus' silence, we see him going to the cross purposefully. And in the prisoner exchange, we see the reason he chose to go there. Jesus swaps places with sinners so that they can go free. On the cross, Jesus has died in our place for our sins. The cross that he died on was meant for Barabbas. But it was also a cross meant for us. We should have suffered for the things we've done wrong. But Jesus has suffered instead. And that was his choice. He wasn't an unwilling participant in his own death. He purposefully submitted to his father's will so we could be saved from our sins. And because he was innocent, because he was righteous, he didn't have to pay for his own sins. And so Jesus could pay for ours. 
He could swap places with us. And that is why he is the only choice we have for Savior. There is really only one Jesus, Jesus the Messiah. Well, the wrong choice about Jesus is often made because of the same problem that Pilate had. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. In addition to what was clear before his eyes, his wife had pointed that out to him. He knows this is a plot where he is being manipulated by the religious leaders. So why does he go ahead with it? Well, the reason is a question of cowardice. Pilate's fifth question is found in verse 22. He is the one in authority here. He is the governor, but he is at a complete loss as to what to do. And so in verse 22, he asks this question. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? I mean, Pilate shouldn't be asking this question, what, what should I do? He's in authority. He's in charge. He should be releasing Jesus, but he doesn't. And the crowd cry out to crucify Jesus. He asks what he should do, and they tell him what to do. They are decisive, unlike Pilate. And so he tries to reason with the crowd. With his sixth question in verse 23, he says, Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, Crucify him! So Pilate is trying to get the crowd to see what he sees, it's almost as if he's saying, can't you see that he hasn't done anything? Pilate has seen this in, in the silence of Jesus, in the chief priest's envy, in the dream of his wife. But the crowd cry out, crucify him. In verse 24, we see that an uproar was occurring. And so Pilate knows his job is on the line. His job depends on keeping the peace. The emperor of Rome would not be happy if there was an uproar, and so we see that Pilate capitulates. He's terrified of the crowd. He's a complete coward. He's in authority. He's in charge, but he completely capitulates to the crowd. He's a coward. He's terrified of what people think of him, and it stops him from doing what is right. And and fear of the crowd, fear of people, so often stops people from following Jesus and making the right choice about him. And the fear of the crowd so often stops us from doing what is right, doesn't it? I mean, isn't it easier at work or when you're at school to ignore... Um, it's so much easier to, to go along with laughing at someone or to ignore someone being bullied than to stand up for them when the crowd are doing the laughing, isn't it? We can be cowards, can't we, when we're supposed to do the right thing, but it's not popular? Isn't it harder at work or at school or in your family to say no to sin when everyone around you is doing it? For example, the, a drinking culture or the smutty jokes takes courage, doesn't it, to take a stand? How easy it is to be a coward. We should be wary of getting caught up in the social media mob, being so easily stirred up to outrage over someone when we don't even know the full story. 
Just because the majority of people think or do something does not make it right, does it? And sometimes, as God's people, we are called to take a stand and do what's right when there is a cost to doing so. Pilate shows that there is a cost here to doing the right thing. And there is a cost to following Jesus. Well, all through this account, Pilate has been trying to avoid responsibility that is his. Of putting Jesus to death or setting him free. That's Pilate's responsibility. But the final statement from Pilate emphasizes this. Now, the final statement isn't a question, but the Jewish people do answer. So in a way, you can say it's a question. Uh, But it's this, a question of culpability. Look at how Pilate tries to avoid being culpable for Jesus' death. In verse 24, he publicly washes his hands in front of the crowd. Now, this was an action that the Jewish people would understand because it was from their law. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 21, where we read how when a murder murder was unsolved in a community, the elders of the town had to wash their hands publicly to declare that they do not know who the murderer is. To declare that they are not responsible for what has taken place. And Pilate does this ceremony himself to say, I am not responsible for this murder. He says of himself in verse 24, I am innocent of this man's blood. Notice how close what he says here is to what Judas Iscariot said. Judas Iscariot said in verse four, uh, uh, in earlier on in the, in the chapter uh, how he is guilty of innocent blood. Uh, verse 4, I have betrayed innocent blood, Judas said. Judas admits culpability. Of course, we see he went the wrong way with that. But Pilate here tries to avoid it altogether. I am innocent of this man's blood. And the word for innocent here is a little bit different from the word for innocent in verse 19. This doesn't mean I am righteous, but it does mean simply I am not guilty. I am not guilty, Pilate says, of this murder. And Pilate can declare himself not guilty all he likes. It is his, uh, it's not a literal signature, but metaphorically speaking, his signature on the death warrant. He is guilty. He's guilty because he alone has the power to stop this. He alone has to give the order to crucify. That's a big responsibility. In in history, um, Queen Elizabeth I had to give the order and literally sign the death warrant for her cousin, Mary Queen of Scots. And she constantly would get the death warrant, sign it, and rip it up because she couldn't bear to be the one who had to be responsible for the death of a fellow queen and her cousin. She recognized the weight of that. Eventually, she did sign it and Mary was executed, but Pilate here, he tries to avoid that weight that was on him. But he is responsible 
And whilst Pilate tries to evade the culpability and, and blame shift, notice how the crowd do the opposite. Look at verse 25. Pilate tells them that this is their responsibility, and then we read, all the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. They say that they're happy to take responsibility for this death. And they're happy to take any consequences that come their way, even to their children, the next generation. That's how much they want to see Jesus dead. Now, this does not mean that the Jewish people are forever to be punished for the death of Jesus. It does not mean that. This verse, in fact, has been misused for much anti-Semitism in the past, and that's wrong. But these specific people in this time and their children did suffer as Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed in AD 70, a judgment for their rejection of the Messiah. And so Pilate, in verse 26, releases Barabbas, and he has Jesus flogged, and he, he hands him over to be crucified. And the Jewish people there can claim responsibility, but it is Pilate who, if you like, has to take Jesus' hand and place it in the hands of the soldiers who are about to mock him and nail him to the cross. He ignores his wife. He ignores his conscience. And he fulfills the words that Jesus himself said back in chapter 20 and verses 18 and 19. In those verses, Jesus said, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And the words of Jesus happened exactly as he said they would. And over the next few weeks, we're going to see how Jesus is mocked and is flogged and is crucified. So who really is to blame for the death of Jesus? Who murdered Jesus Christ? Was it Judas? He betrayed Jesus and leads his enemies to him. Is it the Sanhedrin? They plotted to have Jesus killed. We've seen that. Was it the crowd? Matthew showed us how they've taken responsibility on themselves for the crucifixion. Was it Pilate? He was in authority. He had to sign the death warrant. He could have put an end to it, but didn't. All of these were involved, and all of them were responsible for the murder of Jesus Christ. But there is other responsibility too. We see here that God also is to blame. Jesus is silent because he's following the plan of salvation of his father. And we're going to see as we look at the crucifixion that there is a role that the Father plays as Jesus is crucified. This is part of the plan of the Godhead. Why did Jesus choose to do this? Why is it that, that the Father allows his Son to go through this? How, is, how can God take this responsibility for the death of his own Son? 
Well, it was because of our sin. And therefore, because of our sin, we are culpable for the murder of Jesus Christ. He died in our place for our sins. And so we also are responsible for all that is going on in this gospel here. The hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, sums this up really well. In the final verse, we read, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out upon the, upon, among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And so now we need to respond rightly to the death of Jesus with the answers to these questions that Pilate asked. Or rather, we shouldn't need to ask the questions anymore. Let's no longer question Jesus' crown, but rather submit to it. Let's not be confused by his actions but rather let us thank him for them. Let us not question which Jesus, but choose to follow the only Savior. Let us not follow the crowd in cowardice, but Christ in conformity. And let us remember every day our culpability for the death of Jesus. So that the only question we really can ask is this. How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I would have loved to have picked that hymn as our final hymn, but actually I don't think I could quite bear uh, to pick that particular hymn and not have us all uh, sing it in a rousing chorus because I think, well, all hymns are designed to be sung, aren't they really? But that one in particular, I think I'd struggle to pick. But that is a question uh, that we should be asking ourselves, isn't it? How can God do this for me? Uh, but not that it's not a good uh, hymn to close with, uh, but nevertheless, um, this is a most appropriate hymn. We're going to finish with how deep the Father's love for us. Uh, thinking again about how it was our sin that put Christ on the cross. And he did that because of his great love. How deep the Father's love for us.
Well, we're going to uh, pray. Um, just, I wanted to mention something for prayer. Um, Megan, her father, has um, had a heart attack uh, last night. Uh, so we're going to pray uh, for um, Megan and her family at this time. And Megan asked if I, I'm going to pray for it to do it at the end because she has to get through all of the music. Uh, so I said that I would, uh, I would wait. And I think it's a good time that we can pray uh, to do that now. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what we've heard tonight from your word. We thank you that you are our saviour and that you have shown how much you love us. You love us so much that you sent your only son to die in our place on the cross. And because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we have hope as your people. And even in difficult times, uh, we as Christians can look to you. And we thank you that Ed is a believer in Jesus Christ. And we pray for him today. And we pray for Elna, his wife. And we pray for Megan and her family. We especially pray that you would be very close to them. We ask that you would give them peace and comfort. Uh, especially I pray for uh, Megan and Tim and Elijah and Calvin. At times like this, uh, the distance of an ocean feels so more immense than it is. But we thank you that you are the God who is omnipresent and are in control of all things. And may this truth be known in their hearts. But we do pray that Ed would get the right treatment, be able to be assessed and treated quickly. And we pray that you would bring healing to his body. And we thank you that you are uh, our God and our King. You are sovereign over even this situation. And we pray for trust in you at this time. Give wisdom and help during this time of need, we ask. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the one who laid down his life for us. Amen. 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 